This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Swara Saleh. And also joining us today is producer John Liang. John, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And today we are exploring the legal questions of the Star Wars universe with our new friends, the Legal Geeks podcast. That is Jessica Medersen and Josh Gillian. We talked with these masters of galactic litigation. (laughs) We talked with these masters of galactic litigation about a range of questions from the legality of boarding parties, stand your ground laws on Tatooine, Rogue One, and much, much more. But first, we are recording this a couple of days in advance of the show. It is Monday night, 10.25 p.m. The Star Wars Episode Eight Last Jedi trailer just concluded a few minutes ago. Guys, how are we feeling? <laughs> I am feeling very, very, very good. It was a perfect trailer in my opinion. It presented amazing and exciting scenery without giving too much away and that's what a trailer should do wait 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 wait. before we started recording you said that there was something that had you like really nervous or that people were losing their lids or something is there something out there about the trailer that you're concerned with no, I no, didn't no. I think say it was, that. it's just basically the trailer itself, and the, the 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 final reveal, the last you know ten seconds of the trailer uh-huh. was kind of mind blowing. That was <laughs> the uh, the outstretched hand that I think we all were afraid might be on the menu in some sort of way. Okay, um, so for our listeners, you know, you know what we're referring to. Ray saying to Kylo, "I need someone to show me my place in all of this," and him outstretching her hand to her. It's obviously some sort of misdirection. I mean, it's not like Ryan Johnson is actually telling us, oh, Ray is going to go to the dark side. It's like a tease because all of our heroes are tempted yeah. by the dark side at one point or another, and nothing's that any sort of guarantee, and it doesn't show Ray's reaction at all. Right. I mean, if, I think, like I said, this is doing what a trailer should do. It's showing this oh, yeah. amazing and uh, riveting scenery and scenes and character interactions and dialogue that's meant to excite okay, okay. the so, audience. So all that, all that, all that fluffy stuff aside. So like, <laughs> oh, excuse <laughs> what, me, what? oh my the god, fl- the fluff, Suara. <laughs> my goodness, you don't appreciate art, Stephen. That's what this is. <laughs> oh yes, I hate art. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have you have Ray and Kylo, but then before that, I think exactly what you said. I mean, Luke uh, and Mark Hamill—they're speaking to the audience in that line. This is not going to go the way you think it is. Exactly. And, and that's what Luke and I think Ryan Johnson have been saying about this movie for the longest time that there were things about this movie that, that they questioned at times, but like Mark Hamill said, like at the end of the day, he knows that it's the right way to go, but it's, I think it's going to rock people. Right. Yeah. When he delivered that line in the trailer, what I actually was taken back by was that Luke appeared to be on his back. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he looked yeah. very, very. Either that, or just you know, emotionally taken aback as well. Yeah, it's. I wonder who he was saying that to. I wonder if 
standing over him was Ray or if it was Kylo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you there. I mean, I say this is a perfect trailer and, you know, I'm saying not to expect like, you know, what it's showing you. I'm saying to, you know, it's presenting us like teasing bits that are meant to make us speculate. But definitely, I think something we can all agree on is that this looks so much different from any sort of Star Wars property we've ever seen before. Oh, and that excites me so much. Yeah, very much so. so much much. Even, it, yeah, a lot of red. You've got Finn fighting Phasma. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I particularly enjoyed um, the the very beginning of the trailer the like we were saying the intense reds where kylo seems to be kneeling before snoke in his chamber and it, it's literally just a completely red room and it sort of takes you back to that moment that that han and kylo had in the force awakens where everything goes black and red and that seems to be an actual stylistic choice of this new string of movies it is much darker yeah and, and there's also a se- section where like the millennium falcon is f- like flying through a cave of like red crystals yeah, red. Well, no, there aren't red kyber crystals, right? Those are, they're made. Correct. Kyber crystals are made red. They don't right. sound red. Yeah. Right, right. That's so, bleeding okay. the crystal. Yeah. 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 So that does, so it couldn't be a kyber crystal cave unless it's red light reflecting off of things in the cave like the ships. <laughs> oh my gosh, guys. So I actually, I actually was so surprised at the lead of the trailer being Kylo Ren. Um, the It began with him. And then it continued, you know, three or four frames with Kylo Ren uh, and Snoke narrating. It wasn't until, you know, the first uh, 20 seconds that we actually got to uh, got to Luke and Ray, which I, I actually found to be a little bit of a, of a head fake there in terms of what everybody was expecting. It probably was. Yeah. 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 It's like trying to throw us all for a loop about the structure of this film and, you know, Ryan Johnson said that this is going to be an intensely character-driven piece and we should expect to delve into the psyches of villains and heroes or those in between and that's really exciting to me because I've always been a proponent of the notion that characters should always drive plot and not the other way around. If it is the other way around, I think it's weak storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, But one other small scene we got with one of the villains, with Snoke, showing him basically torturing Rey, either force choking her or doing something to her. And I think it's amazing that, you know, of all the scenery that they were going to show us, they showed us that a confrontation between our main hero and our presumably main villain. And I got to say, Snoke, I think in the fandom hasn't appeared that menacing to uh, fans generally, but I think this may have just turned that around. You know, it's funny how people see different things. I guess when I saw Snoke and Ray in that that one clip there, I didn't really see torture. I just sort of saw, I don't know. It was like this intense. Really? It, it it was sort of like this intense reaching at her and into her. But I'm not. I, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, showing how how powerful he is to her, but but not really like trying yeah, to make her hurt. I, I don't know. I guess I didn't see torture. Kind of like we maybe saw. In the Force Awakens, you know, right. with being strapped to a chair and having yeah. your right. mind probed, it felt different. I thought it was like a demonstration of power. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to watch that again. I could totally see that. But what did you guys think of the repeated use of raw power? They say that line twice in the movie, referring to Kylo and then referring again to Ray. Or I guess he was speaking to Ray and speaking about Kylo, but he did it by by saying that said that you have raw power too. He was he was horrified. She broke a rock in her meditation. 
Yeah, it, it, and I, I, honestly, my first thought was he wasn't talking about Kylo. He was talking about Darth Vader. Mm, that would be... I don't know. It, probably not, but I, 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 that I, was my first... But now, that he, now that you talk about it, it's like, no, you, you, it actually makes more sense that it would be talking about I, Kylo. Yeah, I, I definitely thought it was Kylo from the start, and that it's just highlighting how much of a connection there is between Kylo and Rey. So two other things that I, I wanted to bring up real quick. I... I now believe that that scene where Luke is standing by R2-D2 and kneeling before a burning building, that's his burning temple. Yes, absolutely. I I think that was, I think that was one of my thoughts in the first teaser, but now I'm pretty darn sure because when he, he mentions the raw power in the trailer, it, it cuts to, you know, him kind of digging out from underneath rubble. I think that that was the burning down of the temple. And so we might actually see a flashback. Yes, exactly what I thought it was. It was like one long flashback where I guess Kylo comes along and, and, and uh, wipes out everybody in the temple and wipes out the temple and nearly kill. And I'm assuming Kylo probably think, may be thinking that he has killed Luke because you see Luke, mm-hmm. Luke's hand, you know, coming out of the rubble. Maybe Kylo thought, Kylo thought that he's going to go, he, you know, blew up the building and with burying Luke below, beneath it and uh, killing him. That's a mistake villains always make. Yeah. They always assume the hero just dies. Um, yeah. I've knocked down this building. I have won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's see. We also saw Kylo uh, flying into the depths of his mother's ship, and we see a dire situation. I, I, this is this. I mean, I thought this was showing a lot of leg. Like, yeah, you yeah. Know, yep. like that. There's gonna be a moment where he flies into the belly of her ship. And there seems to be a moment where he considers pulling the trigger and blowing the whole thing up. Like, I feel like they just kind of gave away one of the biggest moments attention. Like, we we didn't need to know that there was going to be that moment with them in this movie. I don't know. Maybe, but maybe, at the same time, maybe it's a head we fake, think, Yeah, at the same time, do we think we don't know what his actual what his next move is going to be? You, you see his hand grip the trigger. You think it might be actually squeezing it down to make it start to fire. Does he go all the way in where you see laser bolts come out? and the ship explodes or something or does he take his thumb off and nothing happens yeah it might not even be leia's ship i mean it might just be a cutting trick you know True. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. there's yeah. there's always that possibility yeah. and then I, did you guys catch some of the uh some of the the speculation about the poster in which we mm-hmm. have luke looming large in the background of this yeah. poster in a way that historically from time to time your villains are placed in the back yeah. of Star Wars posters like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think you think that we are going down this road? Do you get the sense more than we did before that this might actually not be the greatest time in Luke's life? God, I hope well, not. <laughs> well, well, it certainly isn't the greatest time, but I cer- also certainly, I, I feel like I know. I feel like in general we know that Luke's not on the dark side. I think that he is in a dark place, so to say. He's very despondent, you know, after Kylo betrayed him and the rest of the Jedi and killed... Right you know, a bunch of them, but I think he himself is still relatively firmly in the light, or maybe he's more in the middle, you know, as you've speculated before, Steven. Oh man. I, I feel, I feel a sense of dread after this whole thing where (laughs) between, between Luke's comments, just sort of that clip of him on his back saying, you know, this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. 
And everything that's going on with with Kylo and and Ray, I think Ray is going to reach out to Kylo because she is confused by just how awful Luke is. Like, I think he's going to do something. T- I think I think I think he's going to do something to repel her and make her be like, well, I don't want to be whatever you are, or <laughs> and and take that step to try to find something else. I really think that she's going to step into a dark place, and it's because Luke. I think it's because Luke has. Not blood on his hands, but I think I think he has something much darker in his past that we haven't quite figured out yet. I, I, I dude, I've actually speculated this. I've actually speculated uh, in the past couple of weeks oh that gosh. that Luke has done something yeah. that you know is really shocking to Ray, to the galaxy, to us, and not necessarily that it will drive uh, Ray away from him and turn to the dark side. I think it could potentially drive Ray away from him, but I'm not just saying this because I love Ray. I very firmly believe that they wouldn't turn her to the dark side, at least for long or permanently. But I do think that there is some sort of secret about Luke that we are going to find out yeah. about in this film. And you know, the, I think the reason he is hesitant to train Ray has to do with this dark secret of his. You know, not simply that Kylo turned to the dark side and was uncontrollable, but specifically, you know, Luke bearing some responsibility for this dark thing that he did. And now that you were talking about this, I, just, I know just a couple of minutes ago I was saying that, you know, the, the shot of Luke's hand coming through the rubble was as a result of Kylo's destroying the temple and thinking Luke was dead. Now I'm wondering if it wasn't something where Ray, you know, blew up his hut, one of his huts on Octo, and that's he, that's him getting out of that wreckage after Ray has fled fled, fled from him, from Luke. Yeah, that that is all within the realm of possibility. I think uh, before we round out, and we do have to round out our our discussion here on the last Jedi trailer. I wanted to ask one loaded question for you guys before we go. Do you think that this trailer? flies in the face of the narrative of some that this trilogy is Ray's story. It seems to me that we, that they completely leveled this out between being the story of Kylo and the story of Ray, not so much Kylo being a menace in Ray's story, but that this is going to be a pretty even split going forward. I don't think so. I think that Ray is still the main protagonist of this whole series of films. And when you look at the Last Jedi teaser poster, um, she's in the middle at the foreground with yeah. a lightsaber upraised. And, you know, it's the speculation about whether she'll stay on the light or go to the dark side between well, her and if, between if, Luke and if Kylo. I may, that's and, not exactly what I'm asking, though. It's not about protagonist, antagonist, or, or the good versus mm-hmm. the bad. It's you know whose story is it you know no but that's what but that's what i'm saying you know i in literature your protagonist could be an evil person as well but i'm saying that ray is very firmly at the foreground and yes it is you know a balance of her and kylo with kylo as the main antagonist or you know i've seen some debate about this on twitter yeah. so you you actually raise a good point about who whether there there are multiple protagonists but yeah. i do very still firmly believe in I feel like I know, I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant here, but still based on, based on like marketing, based on, you know, hearing Ryan talk about this and others, this is still very firmly Ray's story. And, uh, I think it's going to stay that way. I think that Kylo will obviously be prominent. Like Kylo is this film generation's Darth Vader. So he'll be prominent insofar as Darth Vader was prominent to the original trilogy, Mm -hmm. which was huge, but still Darth Vader 
technically wasn't the main protagonist of the original trilogy. It was Luke and Han Solo and yeah. Leia. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that and, and took me back to uh, took me back to English class on the question of the definition of protagonist. You know, I mean, that and that is a good point. And I, I concede. So protagonist is the leading character. It's a major character in the drama. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to do with allegiance. But I think I think typically we just tend to write it off as being the good versus bad dynamic. Your antagonist is the bad guy. So now I'm almost thinking like, I think maybe we are headed towards a situation in which we do have two protagonists, uh, both operating on both, yeah. both operating on both sides. I almost feel like Luke is going to be the antagonist, where everyone dislikes him, where 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 Ray Ray dislikes him, Kylo dislikes him, and and we're all kind of disliking him as the audience. Like, what happened to you, man? Yeah, Star Wars is so good at you know, you know Star Wars is marketing and their trailers. You know, for whatever for a host of reasons, has been very good at. You know, misdirecting and giving, making you think that this movie is going to go this way, where in reality it goes a completely different way. So, yeah. you know, we could we could be completely one hundred percent right about all of this speculation. We could be completely off the beaten track, wrong about what's going to happen. So that's one of the beauties of the, of this, these movies is that they all they really do the, what they do is just really really get us our appetites whetted to really want to see the movie. And that's what I love so much about this trailer is that. It left all of this room for speculation, and as we're talking about it now, I gotta say, you know, Stephen and John, I find a lot of your po points very compelling. I don't happen to hold them now, but I still love to hear them, and I would be very excited to even have myself be wrong on certain things because I just feel so confident that this is going to be an extremely well-told story you know, when we see it in theaters. I also, we got our tickets tonight. We're so excited. We're all set for, yeah, we're all set for Thursday. <laughs> rock and roll, rock and roll. Well, I think, uh, I think I appreciate all that, Swar, and I, I think it's just the most important thing to remember that we are fans. You know, we're not, we are not, you know, the guiding hands of Star Wars. We're just here to enjoy. And, uh, yeah, and if, just and if we're wrong about all, if we're wrong about all of our speculation, I would be overjoyed if the movie, even if the movie, as long as the movie is good. So I'm perfectly happy and to be completely proven wrong at every single one of these points. In these, in these challenging and scary times awaiting a movie, this is when we take <laughs> to our knees and say, "In Kathleen Kennedy, we trust." So exactly. All right. So moving on, you guys just got back from New York Comic Con the other day, and you saw Mark Hamill himself. How's that? How was that? Uh, how was that? Yes, Laura, how was that? So amazing. <laughs> I'm not jealous at all. So amazing. Mark is the best. Oh. I saw I saw him uh, at his live show, An Evening with Mark Hamill, uh, on Saturday night. And I got I was like seated in like the sixth or seventh row uh, away from him. So I was like 10 feet away from him. And I got to take some really cool pictures of him. And I got to tell you guys... I have not laughed more than that show with Mark Hamill. And the thing is, I've seen him live twice before at London Celebration and Orlando Celebration. Laughed a lot there too, but Mark is ever so stepping up his game with his jokes, with his stories, with his like resonance with the audience. And like, he's such a funny guy. And I got to ask him a question in line uh, to the microphone and I asked him, you know, it was towards the end, so I knew that he probably wasn't going to answer it, like, so directly. He was, you know, just saying whatever was on his mind, and we all loved it. And he was also giving out free posters with his signature, uh, both from Star Wars and as the Joker. But what did you ask him? 
I asked him <laughs> if he, Mark Hamill, were in the Star Wars universe, what would he himself be doing? And if the Joker were in the Star Wars universe, what would he be doing? Um, Mark just like put up his arms and was like, it always amazes me how much the fans know so much more about the universe than I do. And then he was talking about the difference being an actor getting into these things and just reading scripts over and over again. That's an amazing deflection that he gave. I mean, he, I, oh, is I know. he should yeah, run for I, office. I know. <laughs> oh man, I, I I want him to save his stress. I want Mark to be completely sane and not deal with uh, uh crazy politics. I'd love for him to comment on it. But anyway, and then and but then he said, I it was only a couple of years ago I found out about Mara Jade, like his oh, wife in the Luke Skywalker's wife in the extended universe. He was like, only after I'm in the films they give me a girlfriend, oh, <laughs> and and. It was amazing, laughed so much, and, you know, making eye contact with him. Oh, so amazing. He's so awesome. And he gave me a signed poster of the Killing Joke uh, movie he did, uh, signed by both him and Kevin Conroy, the classic voice of Batman. And then the next... And then the next day I got uh, this the autograph I was planning for with him, uh, and uh, I waited four hours in line, but it was worth every second because getting to like stand right next to, in front of Mark and get to tell him like how much I loved him and thanked him for all the joy he gave us in our lives, and I also um, gave him as a gift an X-Men comic that I actually got at Oak City Comic Con when we did a panel there that was signed by both the, the author and the uh uh, artist of the comic and Mark as a collector he really appreciated it and uh, he they said there would be no personal messages on the poster signed but it would just be to whoever but he gave me a personal message he said the force is with Suara like that's it's great. on my last Jedi poster that I bought so Ugh, that's yeah it was it was amazing and I got to see friends at uh, New York Comic Con as well which was really great and it was a really amazing time and just for y'all uh, y'all folks down south we will be in Durham North Carolina on November 12th, we will be at Bull City Comic Con. That is one of the subsets of North Carolina Comic Con doing our Star Wars Goes to Washington panel on the Sunday of that show. So we're really, really excited. And if you're down in that area, we hope that you come out to Durham, North Carolina to see us present this panel. Also being joined by Nick DeColandria, one of the contributors to the Coffee with Kenobi podcast. So that will be a fun time. Guys, I think we are about ready to cut to the legal geeks. This is going to be a fun conversation. We really hope you all, you all enjoy it. Uh, it's a conversation with uh, Jessica and Josh, who do another podcast on um, you know, nerd stuff and legal questions. So they are litigators themselves and lawyers, and they, they do a podcast where they, they just sort of examine different sci-fi and fantasy properties and all the different conundrums that come up in them, um, such as the legality of boarding parties, which we will talk about uh, in the context of Star Wars. So without further ado, let's talk to the legal geeks. All right, and joining us now are Jessica Meterson and Josh Gilliland of the Legal Geeks blog and podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, y'all. Thanks for inviting us. It's awesome to be here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I, I, I guess we met on the Twitterverse. That's where we first heard about y'all and y'all first heard about us. And I think we saw a very obvious area of overlap. I don't know about uh, how the, the legal world works, but the political world's full of lawyers. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that goes both ways, 
but this seems like a, an area where we have a lot to talk about. Y'all have a, a, a blog and podcast where you discuss the legal affairs and questions of geek culture. So all sorts of different properties. I've seen, I've seen you take on Star Trek and Star Wars. How did this website and this podcast come together? Uh, what was the goal behind it? So it all starts with both Jessica and I do e-discovery. And uh, one day I did a blog post by a federal magistrate judge in, from Washington, D.C. named John Pacciola. And he had a high noon reference. So on the blog post I did on my uh, blog, Bowtie Law, I made all of these cowboy references, including Blazing Saddles. Jessica found that on from Twitter and we started interacting, which led to a discussion about Blazing Saddles, followed by Young Frankenstein. I think Caddyshack and Airplane were right up there too. Yeah, and Caddyshack was third, then Airplane. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, we should work together. Yeah, we're doing this all on Twitter, through the direct messages on Twitter. I'm in the office. I'm supposed to be working. We're making these movie references. And next thing I know, Josh is like, hey, we should do a blog on this kind of thing. And I'm like, okay. And all of a sudden, he's sending me like emails and web addresses. And I'm like, holy fudge. I'm just taking a break from work. Oh, my all gosh, of a sudden, <laughs> I became a geek blogger just like that. So what, what is the level of affiliation between y'all's practices or, or where do y'all practice law? I, I'm kind of illiterate when it comes to this industry. So help me through. What, do you, what are y'all's day jobs like and how does this factor into it? Well, for me, this is, um, it's really kind of a novelty item, although I have been able to work in um, some of my legal expertise into this. So I'm a business litigator based in Madison, Wisconsin now. Um, so that means I'm the type of lawyer that's really of no use to anyone unless you're one company suing another company. <laughs> but, you know, there are kind of contractual issues that come up or employment law issues that come up sometimes um, in some of the posts. I did one, for example, I think I did a labor law post on Pam and the HR department in Archer and how they basically violate every labor law out there. Um, but otherwise, this is kind of something for me that is just fun. It's a fun way to kind of use my legal mind in a less maybe intense uh, sort of situation. And thanks to Josh and all of his great efforts, we've also been able to meet a lot of other fantastic legal minds out there who happen to be fellow geeks. I love it. Yeah, I, I mean, just on, on a professional note for me, like doing this podcast has been the greatest networking tool that I could have yeah. ever tapped into. Um, I've got to talk to people because they are political junkies and they work in politics and media but they also love star wars and i like i should have no business networking with these people there's so many like rungs above me or whatever and this is how we can come together it's a really exciting way to work your hobbies and your interests into your professional life i think it's so cool that y'all have done this yeah it is uh, you know like i do electronic discovery so that means emails text messages all of the way that we live is how we end up litigating and from like a political standpoint, whenever there's a major political sc scandal, normally that's one of those ways that we can help explain e-discovery, whether it's, you know, uh, say the son of a president tweeting out screenshots of uh, emails that look like treason. Stuff like that is what we do. So uh, I do work with a software company and a lot of content for them, white papers and blog posts. 
And this blog has been the career highlight for me. You know, when we spoke at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, we did judges on Star Wars. And that included nice. one of the justices from the California Supreme Court, who is a, uh, an amazing uh, jurist, and he was on President Obama's shortlist for the Supreme Court. Neat human being. The one of the uh, circuit judges from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, John B. Owens, amazing nerd, fascinating guy. He has Games of Thrones uh, references and opinions, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like, wow, we had really similar childhoods. Uh, we had we had magistrate judges who are hardcore nerds, and one of them, uh, magistrate judge Stacy Beckerman did how she would defend Finn for desertion um, and she wrapped it to the tune from Hamilton and brought the house down. I haven't seen the federal judge. It was an amazing moment. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We were in the main room at San Diego Comic-Con with all the other Star Wars panels on Friday. So that was like the Hasbro panel with all the new toys coming out. And we had 500 people in the room. There was a two hour line to get inside to see us. Not yeah. everyone could see us. Uh, I had an email this past week from a now second year law student at Bolt, which is Berkeley. And he clerked at the California Supreme Court. And he spent time with Justice Quaylar discussing clone rights and yeah. over uh, executing order 66 and types of defenses they could handle and he's going to do a guest post so i just i'm so happy thinking about a first year law student talking to a state supreme court justice about deep legal issues from star wars it's fascinating. It's something that gauges your interest in that fictional world, but also in the real world. And something I like to do a lot with movies and TV and comics, whatever, is point out certain inconsistencies, not because I want to uh, like uh, mark it down or anything, but rather because it's interesting to see where those logical gaps might be. And, you know, whether it's science or politics or uh, law, as you two discussed, there's so much to dig through. I especially love what you talked about clones' rights, um, because something I had uh, when I was watching the prequel trilogy as a kid was, I thought, oh, the clones are basically like droids. But no, when you get older, you realize, no, they're organic beings. They have rights. They have feelings. They have all this sort of stuff. Yeah, and I well, Justice Quayler in particular from the California Supreme Court, I mean, he gave a very thoughtful kind of discussion on droids rights, clone rights, because these are issues that he's also facing. I mean, we're getting really close to some of these issues in the real world. I mean, that's one of the great things about sci-fi, right? The whole idea of sci-fi is that it's possibly us, you know, in a little while. And so some of these issues that, you know, people are like, oh, well, these are silly Star Wars issues. And well, yes, but it's also a way to start framing these serious, fundamental, philosophical and legal questions we're going to be facing in the years to come. Yeah, I think the, the closest crossover between the things that we've talked about uh, possibly is this issue of clones rights, because we did an episode on Star Wars propaganda, uh, one of the illustrative books by Pablo Hidalgo, and the separatists 
actually used the the issue of cloning and the the mutilation and destruction of clones on the battlefield um, for these purposes as a propaganda point for how they would message to the outer rim worlds about the brutality and and the immorality of the republic and the core worlds they would bring people to their cause and be like it, it was a it was sort of like a twist of a pro-life message um, that they respected life enough to use droids and so you have this uh, moral question going on in the Republic, and then it is it is being transformed into the politics of the Clone Wars. Um, I've never thought about that. That's really cool. <laughs> I think we need to unpack this for an entire episode sometime. It, I spoke at Nerd Night LA back in March, and I had a ton of questions about clone rights, the insanity defense, because of the biochip that we saw in the Clone Wars episodes. It was a conspiracy fugitive and I'm blanking on the others that were, you know, you watch, it's like, this is really deep for what's supposed to be seven-year-olds and talking about slavery and euthanizing someone for the greater good of the population. It's like, wow. And deep, wonderful issues with the clones. So I want to ask you guys, Swar and I will kind of rattle some things off here. Um, some hot legal questions that come from the Star Wars universe. Um, this isn't quite, um, you know, just like answer the move on. We'll kind of discuss them a little bit um, if they need to be unpacked, but we have a couple we want to rattle off for you. So here's one of the first ones. The interrogations in Star Wars, they, there's a handful of notable interrogations that take place in these movies. I'm thinking um, Vader capturing Leia, uh, and then we see the, the droid with the needle. There's Han Solo in episode five, uh, being pressed for uh, information. It's unclear what exactly they were they were looking for. Uh, and then there's also Kylo capturing Rey. So which one of these poses some sticky legal questions and maybe which one of them doesn't? Well, I think all of those do pose in theory. And of course, I should say too that, you know, we're obviously always kind of imposing our legal structure on the Star Wars universe. Obviously, I don't think Darth Vader cares at all <laughs> about the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. But assuming that we have kind of that sort of structure, um, you know, all of those, there are possible Fifth Amendment violations there, right? And the right, you know, your right to remain silent, your right to um, counsel kind of idea. And of course, you know, the Fifth Amendment um, only applies under kind of very specific sort of uh, situations. So one is that you actually have to have an interrogation going on. So you have to be questioned for some reason. So um, obviously with Leia, they're clearly trying to find out from her um, where she put the plans. Um, I think in all those cases, actually, they are trying to find out some sort of information. So there's an interrogation going on. Then it has to be by some sort of government official, by a police officer or government official official of some sort. So in other words, you know, if a private actor, if someone who, um, if I'm inter interrogating Princess Leia, it would not fall under your Fifth Amendment rights because I'm a private individual. So this has to be somebody on behalf of the government interrogating you. So again, if it's Darth Vader um, on behalf of the Empire or Kylo Ren, there there's an argument if that's actually your government or if they're um, if they're actually, you know, enemies kind of under different governments. Actually, now that I think about it, Kylo may not fall. That may not be. Yeah, that's kind of why I mentioned that one, because it seems yeah. to be two enemy combatants in, yeah. in, in factions that are not even truly established countries or armies. It's the resistance versus the First Order, which is a paramilitary group. It's, it's just kind of like criminal gangs fighting in the streets. <laughs> 
Yeah, in which case then you're hosed actually. <laughs> you have no rights. That's actually a good point. And that's there's some sort of, you know, Geneva Convention kind of situation, but obviously there's none of that going on um, with the First Republic. But then the final thing is too is that you have to be for the Fifth Amendment to apply and your Miranda rights to kick in, you also have to be in a situation where you're arrested or you basically can tell that you're a reasonable person can believe that they're not free to leave the situation. So if a police officer actually stops you on the street and starts interrogating you, as long as you're like, you know, I can tell this police officer to bug off and I'm going to walk away, your Miranda rights wouldn't kick in. But again, like with Princess Leia, she's clearly being held against her will. She's clearly in custody. Um, Han Solo as well. So um, so in those cases, they definitely should have a right to remain silent and right to counsel, but obviously Darth Vader didn't care about either. With Well, with the, the disappearance of the Death Star plans, I guess my question there is, I mean, we're talking about a, a coordinated attack on the biggest government facility um, in the galaxy. Is there not cause, uh, I guess under our law, we're talking about US law in this case, for Darth Vader to start injecting that lady with truth serum and get it out of her? It seems to me that if there was a time, and, and I'm making the devil's advocate argument here, that that's the time, right? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and there's two different parts of that, right? I mean, one is the truth serum, which the courts have actually basically said, no, they're, you know, not reliable. There's a host of problems with them. In fact, I think, did I do a Wonder Woman post on this? Because that goes into the whole thing. You know, the creator of Wonder Woman, now I'm blanking on his name, he also created one of the original lie detector tests, too. Um, you know, uh -huh. a lot of his kind of work in his private life, well, that whole starting of Wonder Woman is a whole fascinating, yeah, issue <laughs> we won't get into here. Um, but anyway, um, but, you know, that does kind of tie into like the ter the uh, torture arguments, right? Like the post 9-11 yeah. enhanced interrogation versus torture kind of line that, you know, obviously um, Bush's administration certainly took a strong stance on, but that's something that all governments do face, you know, face that kind of, it's the Kiefer Sutherland 24 hours kind of nonsense of, you know, if you know they have a bomb, like what do you get to do to stop them kind of rationale? But there is a reason that we have specific laws and that, you know, we're like, okay, we have to treat our citizens and give at least our citizens, um, other enemy combatants may not get as much protection, but at least our citizens get certain rights and protections. Uh. And I studied a little bit about this from our Jack Kirby on Civil Rights panel because of the enhanced interrogation issue. And there's two parts from the Bush years with enhanced interrogations where we modified uh, the law because the first time around you could have made some colorable defense about torture in order to find where the nuclear bomb is, we might have to break an arm. Uh, they revised it and was like, no, no, we don't do that under any circumstances. So we, we didn't want to go to the dark side uh, on that because uh, that's not who we want to be. Uh, but you also get into the issue of what is interrogation and what is torture uh, with, with, you know, what level does it rise to for like physically impacting someone. And there's a big difference between saying, you know, you're, you're leaving a uh, yub nub on loop for someone to listen to over and over again versus injecting somebody with a truth serum, which our laws, you know, there's a wonderful quote from, from, a, from a state court that says, this is repugnant to the constitution. So like there are, there's a reason why we don't have truth serum yeah. being applied yeah. all over the, just yeah. don't do it. Well, Josh, Jessica, I'm gonna happily put my libertarian hat back on now.
<laughs> Suara, <laughs> did you have something? Uh, I was just going to say that it's very interesting to compare this to what we see in Clone Wars and the downfall of the Republic as Palpatine is consolidating more power and as the Clone Wars are going on and on, as you've seen in the Clone Wars series, uh, yeah, citizens of the Republic and all throughout are afraid and the Separatists seem like an increasing threat and Palpatine is using that to strip citizens of more and more civil liberties. So it really seems like they didn't have a robust system of lawyers, as it were, to defend civil rights and liberties in the Republic. Well, there's, there's the basic fact that would it be exciting TV for a kid? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, there is that part. I mean, obviously, yes, a lot of times, a lot of shows totally violate. We even, um, we talked about that a lot with um, uh, 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 S.H.I.E.L.D. I was blanking. I was saying the Avengers, but S.H.I.E.L.D., that, you know, they're constantly violating civil rights. And obviously, part of that is because it makes for a better TV show if you get rid of all those pesky rights. But it's also part of the Shakespeare quote that I used to get wrong, and I'm still going to get it wrong, but, you know, it's first they killed all the lawyers. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's Shakespeare, bad-mouthing lawyers. But no, the point was, is if you actually want to take control and, you know, basically get rid of any kind of fundamental principles or rights, you got to get rid of the lawyers first. Because um, the lawyers, as pesky and annoying as we are, and I get it, my daughter was annoyed with me tonight for being a lawyer, not just giving her simple yes-no answer. Um, okay. You know, we do actually kind of fulfill that role of making sure some of these basic rights are protected. And I am very grateful that we're here to do that, especially in this political time. Uh, moving on, we were talking earlier about the rights of clones and droids during the Clone Wars and the sentience that both of them have. But more specifically with droids, we see at the very beginning of the Star Wars saga, the droids as fully fleshed out sentient beings. We see C-3PO express worries, doubts, fears, concern, compassion, and R2 as well through his beeps and whistles and actions. We see R2-D2 as a fully realized character. And in general, throughout the Star Wars saga, we see droids as um, being able to feel pain, being able to feel emotion and, yeah, again, they are fully fleshed out sentient beings. So on the question of civil rights, what do you make of the rights of droids? You know, they're made to be the galaxy's servants, but should they be more respected than they are? And do they need their defense lawyers? Do they need like uh, just overall more respect and dignity under the law, under galactic law? The answer is yes, and I'll explain why, pulling from a couple examples. One of the earliest examples is why are droids made to suffer? Why do they have emotions? That seems sick and twisted to make a machine you can threaten. So when we go to the cantina on Most Eisley, hearing, we don't serve their kind here, I mean, that's right out of 1950s you know, civil rights horror stories. It's like, really? You want to go there? You have furry naked aliens walking around and that's okay where you're ser serving food, but the relatively clean droid can't come in because he's taken up space from a paying customer? That seems pretty twisted. When you get into the right of public accommodation, 
we have a variety of laws all over the country and it, it really does stem from part of the Civil Rights Act and from 1963 but there are other laws in, in play as well with uh, you can't have state action discriminate people uh, in tipping houses and taverns which was one of the laws in DC if if we want to go to Old Ebbett Grill together sometime but uh, it's illegal to refuse to serve someone because of their race color creed religion national origin the list goes on and it's both state and federal so when you think of the droids it's are they people because that's the key right. keyword in in the law uh and the it'd be i'm toying with doing a mock trial that would be that exact issue and the lawyers representing the cantina would bring a motion to dismiss saying they're not people therefore none of these laws apply it's like saying you want to bring your toaster in on the flip side maybe they're like service animals isn't that what chewbacca effectively is you know you flip it to jabba's palace yeah. where you have a power droid hung upside down by his feet branded screaming no and so other terrible other choice forced to watch it's like you sadistic monster evil that would qualify as torture because the little guy getting his feet branded absolutely that's a sadistic infliction of pain you can clearly hear him scream no and all the other droids watching are not having a good time that would meet all the elements of torture under state law and the issue then is is it a person? What I think a court would do, because if you do have a little R2 unit testifying with a translator explaining what happened, you're going to get a situation where a court's going to sit in equity and go like, no, I'm not going to let this happen. The law's not quite cobbled together just right. But maybe you can make an argument that we have uh, statutes protecting animals from cruelty and also against destruction of property. So maybe if you do a little blending of those two with a little judicial creativity and a little judge-made law, you would go, you can't torture a droid. But there's still property in that case, and that is kind of the question. I mean, you know, it's not just can you, yes, you can't destroy someone else's property or you can't um, be cruel to animals. But the question is they've got, if they have, and they seem to have as much awareness as any human, do they actually have full-fledged rights? I mean, clearly, in the world of you know the the Star Wars universe, um, they don't seem to distinguish between Chewbacca or the other you know kind of aliens at the cantina versus the humans, right? They're all there. So the question is basically because the droids aren't a, a carbon-based life form that somehow they're treated differently um, is the questionable. And I would say that's a pretty arbitrary distinction once you're at that line. And, yeah, and I, I would. The, the importance of what y'all brought up, and you mentioned this with the cloning question, um, is how sci-fi and fantasy is always just a couple of steps ahead of us in terms of where we're going to be and the decisions that we're going to have to make. Um, we are on the, at the dawn of the robots right now. And you know what? Yeah, artificial intelligence. It's happening well, right now. It is. And, you know, Star Wars is not the only, the only front where this has been, you know, a, a huge question. I don't know if anybody watched humans on AMC. Um, but I think in this question, this is, of course, and I'm going to take it to Beltway Bantha's After Dark here, it's going to be a little explicit, but you know, the question of sex robots um, and as sophisticated as they are quickly getting and what they're going to be programmed to do and made to do. And AMC tackled this in their show Humans where 
you know, eventually one of them was like, oh my God, I don't want to be doing this. And we are going to make these robots programmed to, to think about your, your wants and your desires. At what point are they thinking about theirs? And I, there's a day, a day is going to come where we have to answer um, why we are making uh, sex workers and keeping them in slavery and making them in factories. I think it's, it's insanely dark, um, but it's really just around the corner where we already are right now. So this question that you posed about Jabba's palace, um, I think is actually not that uh, fantastical anymore. It, I, I would submit for consideration here, the fact that IG-88 was a bounty hunter, which meant that that droid could enter into contracts and collect on bounties himself. That's a wild card in this because I do get droids being property just oh, as your yeah. pet dog is property or your pet cat and droids are kind of in that relationship that maybe they can't exist on their own that they need a person you know to be with on the flip side ig88 throws a big wrench into this because how is he entering into bounties if droids don't have those <laughs> kind of rights to enter into contracts yeah, I would like to see him get turned away from a bar in Cantina. <laughs> cantina yeah. I don't think that would go very well for the Cantina. Um, so, so, yeah, so Josh I and Jessica, I absolutely agree with you 100% on all of this. I love droids. I think that they're fully fleshed out sentient beings who are fully deserving of rights and liberties and of all due respect because frankly, even from some of our main heroes throughout the saga, they get treated really terribly, especially from Han Solo. He's everyone's favorites, but he's a real, he, yeah, bad guy to droids. But I will play devil's advocate because droids are still machines. They are still programmed to do specific functions. And for all we know, the programming of emotions and even having pain receptors may be integral to their programming because it allows for them to serve their masters better. So under that distinction of the law, they could still be considered machines and property as much as your computer is, you know, something really essential for your day-to-day -day function, but still not something you would consider a sentient being with rights. So how do you rank, you touched upon this a bit with the uh, conflating of animals' rights and someone's property's rights, but on that, when thinking about it as just the property's rights as your own tool, then how do you wrangle around that legal question? Well, I mean, if we talk about just property and droids or any kind of robot as far as your property, that actually opens up a whole bunch of questions then too, right? And so I'm not quite sure if this is what you're getting to, but for example, you know, like one question that keeps coming up with self-driving cars. If a self-driving car, which is essentially a robot that you sit in, if a self-driving car gets into a car accident, who's responsible? I mean, if my dog bites someone, I'm responsible because that's my property. But when it's a robot, I mean, you've got these droids or robots or computers that can do the machine learning and are actually programmed to learn and make adjustments as they go. Um, you know, is the the Microsoft or Apple, you know, uh, computer software people, are they responsible for that? Am I responsible? Because that's the other thing too, that actually property is going to get really weird because right now, everything I'm using to talk to you guys, besides the actual hardware, I don't own any of it, right? It's all software licenses. Apple can update my 
my phone or wipe things whenever they want. So that's another thing too that, you know, one thing that the Star Wars universe doesn't really deal with is so many robots now and so much of what we're dealing with, we're not dealing with a standalone R2 unit that has a little, you know, thing that he connects to the Death Star to talk to the Death Star. I mean, everything is now connected. Everything is on the internet. It's kind of like, I haven't seen Blade Runner 2049 yet, but Joy, I understand, would actually be a very interesting kind of um, subject for this, right? And in fact, maybe I'll need to watch it just to do a post on her. But, you know, as far as even existence changes, once we're talking about this sort of thing on the internet, Internet. And um, yeah, the, you know, who will actually own these droids? If it's an Apple droid that I bought at the Apple store, do I actually own that droid or does Apple? Can Apple come and take my droid away from me no matter how much I love R2-D2? So that becomes a whole question too, a very different kind of property question if we keep the droids in that category. Yeah, and, and I'm really glad you brought up the question of liability. So let's talk more about liability. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot topics here real quick. So when we talk about the Death Star, we often get very hung up on the question of the rebels are terrorists or are they freedom fighters? That seems to be the only thing that gets talked about on this topic. But I bet you two have something else to add on the question of who the heck is getting sued after A New Hope. The Empire, uh, are they financially responsible for Galen Erso's design defect that killed uh, a million Imperial service members on the Death Star? <laughs> Yes, they are. Although I'm guessing the Empire probably made all of them sign all kinds of contracts, basically releasing them from all liability. <laughs> but yeah, I do have to say that is the most fantastic, like reverse engineering. Here's how we're going to explain this one really big gaping hole from A New Hope. We're going to go back to a prequel and make it all intentional. Like, I do love that so much about Rogue Brilliant. One. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, but anyway, so um, yeah, so technically a design defect. The question when it comes, you know, a lot of times we talk about products liability, um, like, you know, when Tylenol had, gosh, decades ago where they had the problem with, you know, the wrong, what was it? Something bad was getting into their pills. I was a kid, but I remember there was some problem with Tylenol. As usually it's a quality control thing. And for some reason, when a product's being manufactured, it's not being manufactured according to its design. And so, and then people get hurt and then there's a lawsuit. So they don't look at intent at all. But when it's a design defect, like when the Death Star is intentionally made with this weakness built into it, then there are different balancing tests that states have to look at because they're like, okay, this was an intentional design. So one of the things that they look at is um, because, you know, you can design a knife and a knife is obviously very dangerous, but it's also the point of a knife to be sharp, right? So a lot of courts will say, well, is this an unreasonably dangerous design? So if you design a knife that also like the sheath for it can actually cut you or something, well, they'll say, well, that's an unreasonably dangerous design. So you don't need that. You know, applying that standard to the Death Star, um, certainly if you're, you know, working on the Death Star, you would say building in this weakness is unreasonably dangerous. You know, similar to it is the, is it not safe for its intended use? If the intended use of the Death Star is to blow up planets, then I would argue as um, the lawyer for the class action suit by all the families of the dead stormtroopers that, you know what? No, this was not safe for its intended use. This had nothing to do with the, you know, the intended purpose of the Death Star. So um, yes, I should be able to sue. And because Galen Erso is doing this, 
this design or create this design defect within the scope of the work he was doing for the Empire as the architect of the Death Star, the employer would be vicariously liable for his actions. So yeah, I would because they can't they can't tie him to like being an enemy agent. He he technically was not committing an act of espionage or sabotage. It was a a. Um, you know, he was doing it on his own accord and he did it under, I guess, under part of his contract. Right. He was, it was within the scope of what he was doing. Yeah. It's, so I would also, it's also a great message for if you are conscripting someone into service, yes. don't shoot his wife in front of him. That's generally a bad plan for recruiting. Or at the very least, have a fail safe. Say, this guy doesn't want to work for us. He's really pissed at us. Maybe we should have someone review his work. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been wise. That would have been smart indeed. Y'all should read Catalyst. It's a really good book. And it explains a lot why Galen Erso was the one, the only one apparently who could design the Death Star. One of, that, cool. one, of the, one of the new canon books. But um, quick question. We won't linger too long on this. Tarkin, as a prosecutor in the Clone Wars, he was put up um, to try Ahsoka in her trial for treason in the, uh, the bombing in which she was framed for. I don't know if you remember this episode, so I don't mean to put you on the spot. But what did you think about that episode and the way that a, a trial was carried out in this, uh, in this context against a Jedi for crimes against the Republic and Tarkin as a prosecutor? I honestly wish her defense counsel had been a Wookiee because that way we could have seen the Chewbacca defense as it was intended. Uh, uh, that being said, uh, it's like recruit Padme as the uh, defense attorney. It's like, were there any other lawyers? I mean, I get it from storytelling that, okay, we'll use Tarkin as the prosecutor, even though like that's not what he does. Um, <laughs> we'll use a sitting senator as defense counsel, even though like she has no legal training that we know of. So if I were Ahsoka, I would really want effective trial counsel that knows what they're doing, opposed to, I'm going to go to my friend because we're tight. Um, <laughs> that's just me. Uh, nothing against Padme personally, but there's that entire issue of the duty of competency. And I'm a huge fan of having competent counsel as opposed <laughs> to somebody who is just a really good shot and enables a uh, murderer uh, and it is an accomplice after the fact for all those uh, Tuscan Raiders who were killed. So I, I just go with defense counsel. Yeah, I just want to say about that because in real life you have so many lawyers that become politicians. And I think that generally because maybe people, general audiences, especially children, don't know how the legal system or the political system works, they assume that, oh, this person is so important and they can just conflate the legal system with someone in from the legislature but it's two completely different things obviously well and a long time ago it was that way right i mean even back to the days of cicero the history of lawyers and politicians being one and the same and actually switching hats um you know alexander hamilton too i just saw the musical finally yay so that's on my brain but um Obviously, he did have actual legal training, but I do think there is a long history of conflating the two, and a long time ago, they didn't need to have specific legal training. So yeah, so in that sense, I can see where they kind of get that inspiration. Right, right. And uh, 
One other question that we have for you, Josh, is about a piece that you wrote for Vulture uh, in 2015, right before The Force Awakens came out, so obviously good timing there, entitled, Is Han Solo Legally Justified in Shooting Greedo First? A Lawyer Explains. So do you want to act as Han's defense attorney right now, Josh? You want us? Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I will be his wingman. So the couple things with that. That was like like the third blog post I wrote on the Legal Geeks in 2012. And when Vulture contacted me about republishing it for Force Awakens, I was like, sure. It uh, it was shared more than the like interview they had with uh, Daisy uh, Riley over her action figures that were made. And which I thought was like awesome. Uh, and then like eight other online publications picked it up. And so it is my greatest contribution to the practice of law. And and I'm okay with that. I can sleep easily knowing that. Congratulations, Josh. Yeah, I know. I won't get appointed to the Congratulations. Supreme Court. But I can say with all certainty that that I really wish Ron Howard would call me so I could have a cameo in the untitled Han Solo movie. So well, can I also say, I think you really tapped into something there. People feel very strongly on this issue. I mean, I know people feel very strongly on everything in the Star Wars universe, but this out of, you know, all of George Lucas's tinkering with things, I think this is probably the one that infuriated the most fans. For many people, uh, Han Solo is their Patronus, their spirit animal. Animal. And to to violate him in such a horrible way with Guido missing at point blank range is just wrong. But to break down the defense issues, you have to have a variety of factors in play that get applied to the facts. Uh, Han is stopped from leaving, leaving the cantina at gunpoint, sat down with his back to the wall, no way to escape, and Guido is threatening him, saying hey, Chapa just might take your ship over my dead body. Guido's reply, that's the idea. That sounds like a reasonable person in the defendant's position could go, this dude's going to shoot me. Shooting Guido was the only thing that Han could do in that situation. And I just think objectively, under the facts, Han was completely legally justified because there was no place for him to go. Yeah, that, that speaks to the reasonable belief question, right? You, you mentioned in your piece a little bit about the difference between um, the, the, the model penal code, um, and I'm blanking on the other thing, um, common law. Um, could, you, could you break down for me real quick before we go any further? What is the difference between common law and the modern penal code? Oh, Boy, so the, the common law flows through us and around us and binds the law together. So uh, it's it's basically judge-made law that goes back centuries. Okay. And when you think of you know Lord Coke and others who were opining on the law, you know, 500 years ago or 300 years ago or 400 years ago, you know, they're they're kind of almost winging it. They're coming up with things in equity that become the basis for modern laws because it's not like the legislatures just said like, hey, we're going to whip something together for fun and and do this. It's it had to come from somewhere, which meant experiences that judges had going, whoa, what do we do here? And thus we end up with judge-made law that, trying to really boil this down, uh, because when somebody says like, hey, where's the common law come from? It's like, that's when you get a migraine in trying to explain 
well, let's talk about the rule against perpetuity. And people go bonkers in trying to understand that. So it's really old. It's the genesis of the legal system. And then when we form nations. <laughs> uh, well, it's the, it's the English and U.S. legal system. Yeah. It basically started with 1066 and William of Normandy invading England. But um, yeah, it's how the English and the U.S. has been a large part of this. But then modern days come and Josh will explain the modern penal code. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically for that explanation, I mean, so you have the common law explanations in your piece and vulture and then the, the modern penal code differences. So sort of the common law is just, you know, the ancient rule has been, you know, if someone draws their sword on you, it's your time to defend yourself. But then the modern penal code in this situation sort of lays out the specifications for in which you can follow through on that. And so you, you were talking about like, he has no way to retreat and there's the retreat rule. Uh, and then there's also the, the clear threat rule, which is, you know, where, you know, something is actually issued and made clear that they are going to harm you, the reasonable belief clause. Uh -huh. uh, so those are sort of the areas in which that factors into that. Um, so that you cannot just rely simply on common law as your reason, like every time you feel threatened, you can just attack somebody. No, and then it varies by state. So when you get things like the model penal code, that's a bunch of law professors sitting around going like, hey, let's come up with this because this is what we think the law should be in the different states in the United States for specific, you know, being specific. And then state legislatures could go like, yeah, that sounds good to us, let's do it. Or they might come up with something completely different. When you get to, you know, the, the retreat rule, or as, as it's also known as the stand your ground rule, like that goes back in California to the founding of the state. Like we've had that for a hundred, over 150 years. And, you know, there are different like forms of it and different explanations of it. Like, you know, the castle rule, if you're in your house and somebody attacks you. Um, there's also the twisted perverted view that people tend to think that he was on my property. So it was okay that I shot him in the back of the head. It's like, no. Technically, actually in Texas, if they're stealing property from you, from your house, you can shoot them dead. So I just want to say it's crazy. I agree. But in Texas, that actually is a law. If somebody's stealing my VCR or DVD player, I can shoot and kill them, which is an insane extension of the castle doctrine. But most people don't do that. And two, uh -huh. you get the people who think, he was trespassing, therefore I could execute him. True. And it's like, no, that's you, Florida. Yeah, it's like, you don't get to do that. You know, right. that's, that's not the way the law is supposed to be. And like, well, he was on my property. It's like, so? It's like, you, you, were you threatened? Did he have a weapon? You know, and when you get into self-defense, you know, generally the response has to be proportional. So that that if somebody's coming at you with lethal force then lethal force is appropriate but if somebody is not coming at you with lethal force you can't respond with a bazooka i mean it has to make sense um and the other thing with self-defense it generally requires um testimony from the defendant to explain their subjective view of what what was going on and, and in han's case i think it's completely reasonable uh, Circuit Judge Owens took issue with Han th uh, tossing the coin to the bartender uh, afterwards and said, sorry about the mess, as that being something like a damning statement. And I don't, well, I generally don't agree with Circuit Court Justices. Uh, I do here, uh, because it, that was just being polite. I mean, it's like, you had to clean up. Um, 
it's uh, he, he was like yeah i left a mess because this guy was trying to kill me apparently there isn't law enforcement on tatooine besides the imperials doing a shakedown for droids but i don't think that's a damning statement or a declaration against interest what's really interesting about this entire argument is and I'm, I'm thinking about George Lucas's change in the special edition to make it so that Greedo either shoots first or at the exact same time. I mean, you know, however you interpret it. But I think this was along George Lucas's line of reasoning. He wanted to convey in the edit that Han did have a compelling reason to shoot Greedo for this sort of self-defense. But as you're laying out, Han already had it. He was being threatened. Greedo said, yeah, that's the idea, over your dead body. And I just find it really interesting that if George Lucas had maybe consulted with you or other lawyers, <laughs> he wouldn't have made this change in the first place. I think especially the subjective intent part comes into play here too, where I mean, knowing what we know later about Java and the bounty hunters, I think, you know, any jury would be like, yeah, it's pretty reasonable to assume that there's only one way you're going back to see Java. <laughs> well, y'all, this has been beyond fun. Thank you so much for joining us on Beltway Banvas today to talk about some of these legal conundrums uh, that are presented in the Star Wars universe. I hope we can do this again sometime and finds another way to cross over uh, and do some collaboration because I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface here. Thank you for having us. I love listening to you guys. You, uh, It's creative, also being a political junkie. I've enjoyed where you've gone. Uh, I also like hearing um, your different views. Uh, uh, and I like Jess and I started that way. We're now kind of, <laughs> we're now kind of on the same team with recent events. So there's that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there used to be screaming matches. We've come a long way. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I mean, Suara and I are far closer today than say, like, if Marco Rubio had become president. You know, like, oh we are. We actually have a lot more in common these days. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Josh and Jessica of the Legal Geeks blog and podcast. Uh, if it is not legal, they will make it legal. <laughs> <laughs> That's my big send off. Y'all, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been fun. Thank you. And now we go to our weekly segment, our legendary Bantha Fodder, where we share something that's been on our mind, uh, brewing in the back of our thoughts, and we can share that unfiltered, uninterrupted about Star Wars, uh, politics, this, that, or the other. Uh, anybody want to go first? I'll go first, sure. Um, my Bantha Fodder basically is all about the trailer. <laughs> That's pretty much been on my mind for like the last five days. Um, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's out. I don't need to see anything else. I am pumped and psyched for the movie to come out on December 14th or 15th. Um, and I'm, it did exactly what I wanted it to do, which was make me intrigued and excited and seriously want to watch The Last Jedi. Well, can't want anything more than that. Um, I'll go ahead and go next. So I have a bit of a double fodder today that I will breeze through in the interest of time. So first, BuzzFeed has an incredible investigative piece up this week about Milo Yiannopoulos, Breitbart, and their long history of collaborating with white nationalist figures and groups to build the tent of the alt-right and make it ready for what they call hashtag war. 
Um, this is one of those articles that if you loathe Breitbart already, it's going to maybe elicit a shrug uh, because it confirms everything that you sort of thought uh, with a trove of leaked email evidence showing that active collaboration between those groups. And you'll be like, oh, well, I was right all along. But regardless, I, I think it's worth reading uh, and foreseeing for yourself so that you can understand the motivations, some of the inconsistencies, and truly just the confusing nature of the alt-right web. Um, if you're someone who is not Breitbart-averse, you need to see this for yourself. And if after reading these emails and seeing how comfortable everyone from Bannon to Milo on downward are with leveraging neo-Nazis and their political energy for their political ends, then you are lost. My second fodder that I wanted to share really quickly is I found this band called Galactic Empire that they they made they made their debut I think two years ago on YouTube with a uh, a metal uh, remake of the Imperial March. Well, they crowdsourced money for a record and then they got signed by Rise Records, which is actually a legitimate yeah legitimate hardcore and punk uh, record label. And they put out their full-length album this year. It's on Spotify. The band is called Galactic Empire. It's, it's incredible music, and it sort of reminds me of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, but Star Wars, but better. So here's three clips of that real quick, and we'll round that out. Empire. You can find their self-titled album on Spotify. I think you'll really enjoy it. Suara, you're up. Take it away. Some of you may have seen in the past couple of weeks more women coming forward about their stories about sexual assault and harassment in the workplace, mainly in LA, but elsewhere as well. Harvey Weinstein, a huge Hollywood executive, has recently been fired from his company because of the allegations against him. And which, to which I say, good, because we can't tolerate this. We can't tolerate harassment. We can't tolerate sexual assault. But the thing is, it happens too often, and it happens on a daily basis. And women every day are afraid to speak out because they know that they won't be believed and that people will dismiss their concerns and accuse them of making it up and people just generally in our society haven't really wanted to accept this endemic uh, like real disease of sexual assault and harassment. And I'll just say, you know, someone I was a fan of, I used to be a fan of, Andy Signore, who was the uh, like uh, head of Screen Junkies uh, YouTube channel, I'm a, or at least I used to be a fan of, I think I still, well, I don't know. 
he it was just found out last this Friday I found out on the bus to Comic Con that he has been harassing and perhaps in some case assaulting female staff at Screen Junkies, including fans who were just coming to be a part of uh, the channel or some videos or something. And the, with the news about Harvey Weinstein, women felt more empowered to step up and talk about the abuse they received at the hands of Signor, which is good. It's a step forward. But seeing these stories and seeing what they had to go through made me so viscerally angry and upset and just like horrified that I was ever a fan of this guy. He's been fired from Screen Junkies, by the way. Again, good. Step forward. But the thing is, Defy Media, which owns Screen Junkies, knew about these allegations months ago, and they only now decided to act when it became public. That is intolerable. They should not simply have to be publicly embarrassed in order for sexual harassers and abusers to get the justice they deserve. Not that his ignore has gone the justice he has deserved yet. Like, you know, he's been fired from his job, sure, but he still has to answer to the rule of law. I just implore our listeners, listen to women, believe women, support women, be there for women, do not think that they're making this up because why would anyone want to make this up? That's my Bantha fodder. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. This has been episode 41 with the Legal Geeks. And we hope that you get connected with the show. You can follow us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas. You can also find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. Suara, John, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Saleh one That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. Like Stephen said, follow Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. And if you're interested in another Star Wars project I do, I have a Facebook group called Sounds from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. We discuss everything in the realm of Star Wars music, John Williams, Michael Giacchino, and more. If you're interested in joining, send a member request and I'll accept you. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Quan John Jedi. That's J-U-A-N-J-O-H-N-J-E-D-I. Fantastic. And if you have thoughts that you would like to have read or responded to on the show, email us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. That's beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. We will read all emails that come in, assuming you know they're not laced with profanity on the horrors of this world, <laughs> but we've maybe gotten one of those. But we would really like to see, we'd really like to see that because we do love having that dialogue with you on the show. And with that, we are at the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. Thanks for staying with us. We'll be back next week with more. And until then, may the force be with you. Always. Always.